If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. When telling the story of things like the French Revolution or colonialism, it can be tempting to sketch out a big-picture, top-down view. But Emma Rothschild has taken the opposite approach in her Kundal Prize shortlisted book, An Infinite History which follows the fortunes of one extended family in the French town of Angoulême, delving into their lives and exploring how the country changed around them. Our section editor, Rhiannon Davis, spoke to Emma about this fascinating micro-history. So thank you so much for joining me today, Emma. And your book is a work of micro-history, tracing the lives of one extended family over five generations in the town of Angoulême in France. What can recovering the lives of ordinary people, rather than telling big narrative stories, tell us about the past? Well, I hope that I do tell a big narrative story by means of telling about a hundred small stories. And I think one way to understand the past is through thinking about what it means to to people who didn't enter into the history books in a large way. I mean, the French Revolution comes into my story. One of the themes throughout the book is the relationship to enslaved people and to the system of slavery. 
There are large questions about how the French economy and economic development progressed, which I look at through the lives of this rather obscure family. And at the end, they aren't obscure at all, or some of them aren't obscure at all. Definitely. We'll come on to that in more detail later on. But something I wanted to know is, for the most part, you are dealing with the lives of ordinary people. And what sources can you find? How do you tease out details of their life from the historical record? Well, that's what's been, for me, so much fun, really, about this project, because the the most obvious and ordinary records, which are basically records of births, marriages and deaths or, or christenings and burials in the in, in the eighteenth century, turn out to be absolutely extraordinary sources if you follow individuals through the different phases in their lives. You look at what's written in the margins, you look at what happened to people, where they where they ended up. And one of the one of the thing things that's very important about how history has changed over the past 20 years is that these extremely basic and ordinary records are so much more accessible. For, for a long time, there have been microfilms of, of birth and marriage records, but now I can read them in the middle of the night. I mean, I spent, I wrote part of this book in, in a very small town in India, and there I was sitting in the middle of the night in rural West Bengal, reading parish records from, from the 1770s in, uh, in Angoulême. And the, the, the records aren't any different and they can't be searched in the sense that um, you can search for a name, but you can, um, you can have access to them in quite new ways. So, so I think the material is there. You just now have the opportunity of, of making more of it. I mean, I, I also was able to put put that sort of life information together with maps, for example, um, which were produced often for reasons to do with taxes. And you could see who lived next to whom. And that was one way of telling who had, who had much knowledge about slavery. There were slaves in this small French town in the, or formerly enslaved people in, in this small town in the 18th century um, who lived nearby, um, who lived, who lived next door to slave owners. Um, so you, you, you build up a picture of, um, of what life was like in the past in a way that um, I think w- would have been very difficult to do, even with the technology of 20 or 30 years ago. And continuing to dig into the sources that are available to you, some of the figures in the family that you cover are illiterate. How does illiteracy play into this? Can it make it more difficult for you to recover the lives of people if they couldn't leave written records? Well, well actually, um, n- none of the people in this family, including those who were literate, left letters that can be recovered now. So in families who weren't rich enough to, for example, have houses with cupboards where their descendants could take good care of their letters, often leave leave nothing behind for generation after generation. So it isn't only illiteracy that leaves people out of 
that kind of record. It's, it's in a way social condition. So I, I, I only know sort of scraps of details about the most literate of the family in, in the 18th century that, for example, they, they signed registers to do with their place of employment. Several of them went to work for the revolutionary administration in the town, which is some indication of what their, broadly their political perspective was. But it's, it's really into the, into the second half of the 19th century before there are any actual letters that are saved. So it's a question of trying to find out what you can from from other sources, sort of putting fragments of historical information together, but at the same time being, you know, completely, you know, resolute or assertively careful about having footnotes or endnotes for, for everything you, you say. I didn't want to speculate about what their lives were like. I wanted to have a source for everything I said. And what was it about this family? Why did you want to tell their story? Oh, I didn't want to at the beginning. I I got completely carried away. Um, (laughs) I I was very intrigued by the uh, woman with whom the book starts. She was called Marie Mar, and she was illiterate. And she um, swore to a power of attorney to try and find out what had happened to her late husband, who was a carpenter had emigrated to the to the Caribbean and had died on the way home and she gives so many details in this um it's a sort of informal affidavit saying she had heard that he'd been able to save his wages and that he'd bought several mules and some slaves, some enslaved people, and she wanted to know what happened to his, quote, fortune. So she she was sort of describing her sources of information and asking someone who was traveling across the Atlantic to find out things for her. So I thought, this is a very inquisitive, illiterate woman. I wonder what the real story was. So that was one thing. And then the the other thing was actually a document from something that happened just a few weeks later. I found the prenuptial contract of Marie Mar's daughter. So the daughter of a carpenter, she was marrying the son of a tailor in this small town, and it was a pretty normal prenup. And then I turned it over And on the last page, there were 83 people who'd signed the prenup as witnesses. And I thought, this is so extraordinary. These people have a lot of friends or a lot of um, people they want to impress or a lot of relatives. I wonder who all those 83 people were and why they were there. So it was like a puzzle, really. I I wanted to know more. And this is what I wanted to ask you about next, is these 83 people Are there any trends that connect them beyond being in the same house at the same time? Are they from the same social groups? They they mostly were from the same social group of the sort of extended families of the bride and the groom. That's to say, small craftsmen, small artisans. They'd broadly... Their, their sort of grandparents had moved into the town from the surrounding countryside. So they, they'd been um, living in the town 
for some time. I think quite a few of them were upwardly mobile in the sense that the bridegroom was because he'd been one of the boys in the town who'd been selected to go to um, the, the, the local Jesuit college. And he eventually, in fact, became a teacher himself. So a lot of, I mean, I, I know who 81 of the 83 were, which, which has been fun. There were a lot of women shopkeepers. It, it was a fairly sort of matriarchal society, a lot of seamstresses. And then there were neighbours. And I think probably some of them had been employers of the bride's brothers at at one point or another. They were from a higher social class. It was a fairly narrow group, with almost all of them with connections to the town. And, you know, sometimes you can't tell, were they classmates of the bride's brother? There, There are relationships that you can't really pin down. But the only way to find out who they were in many cases was to look ahead in time and see you know, for example, if they appear in the records again when they get married or when they die, and you can sort of tell their their life stories through seeing what happened next, that really led me to further um, curiosity about what happened next and and um, how that how the lives of the family and their friends developed over. First, I thought it would be one generation, and then we got into two and three. Um, one of the youngest signatories, she was um, she was nine. She was a young girl of nine, a neighbour who signed the prenup. She went on to be a kind of minor figure in the French Revolution. So that was interesting to see her reappearing. Is that Rose Marin? It was lovely seeing her crop back up. And before we come on to the French Revolution, you mentioned that some of the women were women shopkeepers. So there were women of work who were part of this 83 network. This is something I was wondering about because so many women worked at home. Are they represented in the sources or do their livelihoods, unpaid livelihoods, slip through the cracks? Their employment is never recorded in birth or marriage records and not really in the tax records either. In a lot of the women whose employment was recorded, like seamstresses, were from home. There were a lot of women who obviously were shopkeepers and sort of lived above the shop. There there were open-air markets. There were women who clearly had stands in, in the market. They weren't signatories of the marriage contract, but they were there in the same year. There were two sisters who rented out chairs in the centre of town. I was very curious about them. There was a lemonade seller. You get a sense of the women in the town sort of being concentrated in the rather sociable employments. There were quite a few women innkeepers. I say something in actually in the book about Marie-Emar. The only evidence that I have of all the work she did was a record of her debts. And she owed money for basically for washing powder and for clothes uh, or textiles. So you have sort of very indirect evidence that she spent a lot of her time washing and preparing food. It's still not in um, official records, any um, register of, of women's unpaid work. And continuing to look at Marie, although she lives in a southwestern town, as you've already touched on, her life is really 
very much informed by overseas exchanges and we have this lost fortune. Was this quite rare for families to have a lost fortune out in the colonies? Because this idea of a of a lost fortune or family money spread across the globe does seem to crop up at a few points in the book with different family members. So I was wondering, is it just these people that make their fortunes or apparently make their fortunes in Granada and other parts of the world? Or was this happening throughout France? Well, I'm, I'm glad you say apparently made their fortunes because I, there's no evidence at all that the lost fortune ever existed. And I, I did do something that was sort of uneasy. I, the island of Grenada was captured by the British. So a lot of the records are actually in the British National Archives in Kew. So I went to and I looked for Marie Mar's husband and I, I, I slightly dreaded finding him. I mean, maybe he wasn't dead. Maybe he was living there with someone else. Maybe there was a huge fortune which he was concealing from her. So I, I felt I was, it was almost unfair that she was looking so hard and here was I, you know, able to travel and finding what she, she didn't know. There's no evidence at all that he survived or that there was a fortune or that he owned enslaved people. I think it often was a was a, a kind of myth that somebody had emigrated and done well there. In this town, at least, and this is one of the things I have tried to show, actually, by using some social network visualizations. But in this town, there were there was a significant number of people who did emigrate and who had each of them, you know, maybe six or eight family members who could have expected to inherit. There's quite a lot of correspondence about other potential fortunes. And there's correspondence with family members sending back small amounts of money or small amounts of coffee to their family at home. Now, I can't say whether there's this small town is an average town in France even though it's far inland, it probably had more connections to the colonies that, than, um, for example, towns further east with fewer connections to the Atlantic. But my sense is that if you do this kind of detailed s- study of almost anywhere in France, I would guess almost anywhere in the British Isles, you actually will find many more connections to far off places than than has been assumed. P- people weren't as isolated. There was news traveling within families or within social networks of friends. You have a very different view of, of how much people knew about the large world. And coming on now to the French Revolution, so we've mentioned Rosmarin, but are any other members of the family or other people in the town, are they big players in the French Revolution or are they more on the sidelines? The town itself tends to think of, it, uh, think of itself as being very sleepy during the French Revolution. It's almost a matter of municipal pride that nothing really terrible happened here on one side or the other. And I think that that's, that's um, basically true. I do look at two people from the town who, who went to Paris and became 
fairly significant figures, one on the revolutionary side, one a young woman who who was guillotined for being a counter-revolutionary. She was a, basically a, a, a maid in an aristocratic household and became, to the amazement of her interrogators, a very strong supporter of the royal family and was guillotined together with another young woman, her, her friend. One of marie Ma's grandsons became a priest And he was a revolutionary priest who did very well in the early years of the revolution and then left the church and and he swore fidelity to the revolution, which made him a, a particular kind of priest. Then he left the church and married a parishioner. So that was a fairly radical thing to do by the standards of the times. He He's interestingly one of the members of the family of whom I've lost absolutely any trace whatsoever. He was clearly highly literate. His wife was highly literate, but I can't find them at all. And I suspect that they probably changed their names. That must be so frustrating when you lose them after studying them for so long and finding them in various places. I've got a list of about uh, 12 people who I just have not been able to find. And I, I'm afraid, I call the book An Infinite History, but I'm, a, I'm afraid it's infinite in the sense that I haven't been able to let go of the story. I do still look for these missing people. And I'm, I'm increasingly interested in what happened to the 20th century generations of the family, in fact. I mean, I very deliberately stopped with the fifth generation, in part because there was a, a sort of family connection in that marie Ma's grandchildren, or many of them, knew her, and their grandchildren knew their own grandparents. So, so there's a connection of family memory. But I also when I was writing the book, thought I don't want to go anywhere near anyone who might be alive today. But it's it's been a bit irresistible since the book came out to, to find out a bit more about the um, 20th and indeed 21st century stories. I can imagine. And going back to the time of the French Revolution, so although the family don't really have a direct impact on the revolution themselves, you write that they were still a revolutionary family. How did the revolution impact on them, even if they don't have a huge impact on it? They were able to advance during the revolution into the kinds of jobs that would not have been available for people from their social background. And I'll give you the example of the of the original bride's older brother. He wanted to be a teacher. He didn't quite succeed as well as his brother-in-law did. But during the revolution, he, he got a job working for the municipal administration. He managed to bring in um, his brother-in-law, his younger brother, and one of his nephews, who also became clerks in the, in the municipal administration. And he obviously had a way with papers, and he ended up as the first archivist of the newly created department of the Charente. And that's something that the, the son of a carpenter would have been most unlikely to have been able to 
do in the Ancien Regime. The, the other way in which their lives changed a great deal had to do with the um, confiscation of church property that happened in the early years of the French Revolution, which had a dramatic impact on the texture of of urban life in Angoulême. And this, this uh, Gabriel, the one who became an archivist, appears in the records of what happened to church property. He, he didn't actually manage to buy anything, but he did take out a number of leases on former church locations, including at one point renting the church of a convent in the centre of Angoulême. I mean, what did he what did he do with the rental of a part of a church? Was he trying to start a shop? I mean, this is this is a mystery. But his the the bride and her husband actually managed to buy a, a house which had been part of the former chapter of canons. They paid it off in paper money over a very long period, but it became really the source of the future fortune of the family. This, this is interesting, too. They, they had um, a lot. They had 13 children. They were a very healthy family. So at least 11 of the children survived into old age. Five of their daughters remained together in Angoulême for the rest of their lives. They, they never married. And they used their parents' property as the basis for getting a mortgage on another house, which they turned into quite a successful girls' school. On the basis of that, a lot of members of the family actually clustered back in Angoulême. Some of them bought property and they sort of built, these five unmarried sisters sort of built up a little property empire in uh, in one part of the town so so in those ways too the sort of economic situation of people from their sorts of families was sometimes significantly improved even amidst all the chaos of the of the revolution still to come on the history extra podcast so it's a real story of of inequality within an extended family. And the, um, there's, there's one particular branch of the family who settled in Paris who were really very poor. I mean, they described themselves as destitute. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest 
whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And with the five sisters and with Marie, it seems to be quite a matriarchal family. It's very female orientated. Is that quite unusual for families of the time? I think the the five sisters living together and being rather successful in creating a business, that's unusual. I mean, certainly I, I, I wanted to trace this family through the female line because quite often with family histories, people think that it's only easy to look at the male line because surnames change. And I wanted to show that one could look at the female line all the way through the 19th century. It's helped by the tremendous accessibility of um, records that I, I talked about. It's also helped by the fact that married women in this social class tended not to change their name. So that makes the searching easier. But I do think there was a very deliberate choice on the part of at least these five sisters to favour the female line. And I know that because one of the documents that I was able to find for the 19th century when they had some property was what they wanted to do in their wills. And they um, at one point, this house where the school was, was left in 15 equal parts, all of which went to female descendants of marie Mar. I mean, they were, they were quite clearly leaving out the male lineage. And I, th- I think they were, they had probably a justifiable, here I am speculating about views, but I'm not speculating in print. I think they had a fairly justifiable view that the, that the female members of the mid 19th century family were a bit more sort of settled than, than the males were. I mean, it's interesting in relation to the kind of family history that so many people are interested in now to do with ancestry and genealogy. And this is a story, of course, about a family which isn't my own, to whom I have no direct connection. But it's made me think a lot about what it's like to do family history. And and one of the things that I would be thrilled if people took away from the book was the idea that okay, you can find your own great-grandparents, but actually it might be really interesting to look at your great-aunt or your great-great-aunt or um, the people who live next to your great-grandparents and, and sort of find stories about their larger worlds as well as just following the, the parental lineage back through time. 
And thinking about the economic history of the family, so in the 19th century, the modern industries such as cotton, coal, steel and textiles tend to be focused on quite heavily by historians. But the family wasn't really part of these industries, but you say they were still economic figures. How did they try and better their situations by the old industries, the so-called uneconomic industries? They also tried to improve their situations through expanding new industry, which is government service. One of the most successful of the great-grandsons had a career in the customs administration. Several of them went into tax administration. These were, in a way, boom industries, but they're not ones that have been thought of as being part of the productive economy. And I think one of the ways in which my book does touch on some rather large questions for economic history has to do with the role of the service sector. I mean, we we all know that about 70 to 80% of the population of advanced countries now works in the service sector, but there aren't anything like as detailed records kept of for, for the past at least of what kinds of work people are doing in the service sector, of the ways in which it contributes or doesn't contribute to the economy. So I I hope that by focusing on a family who broadly did well, um, but did it in the public and private service sector, I can kind of contribute a bit to work, which I hope I, as well as others, will do on the role of the service sector in the 19th century expanding economies. Um, I mean, I said that several of them did well. Uh, I, I should add that what, one of the things that uh, was very striking to me in the story is the extent of inequality, because among marie Mar's descendants, there were some who became much richer than the family had been in her generation. But there were also some who became quite a bit poorer. So it's a real story of of inequality within an extended family. And the um, there's, there's one particular branch of the family who settled in Paris who were really very poor. I mean, they described themselves as destitute, which may have been an exaggeration since the source was petitions of one sort or another for relief. But, you know, one of the, one of the women was a, was a street seller. Um, others were seamstresses. There's a tragic um, episode towards the end of the 19th century with one of the descendants who had 10 children of whom nine died in infancy or childhood. You know, so that's a, this was a, a really poor and deprived family in, the, in late 19th century Paris. And thinking about inequality, one family member who becomes very rich and also very famous, potentially the only one of worldwide importance and celebrity, is Cardinal Charles Marshall Alamand Levigerie. Why does he become so famous? He would have denied that he became rich. 
I mean, he made a lot of money, but he he was absolutely resolute in explaining to everyone that it was only for the church, it was only for good works, and that he himself lived in in, in an extremely modest and poor way. And I believe him, really. I mean, he did uh, spend a lot of money on humanitarian operations. He was a brilliant man. It was an act of family rebellion, according to his biographers, to become a priest in the first place, because his grandfather certainly was sympathiser of the French Revolution, was a pretty secular figure, as far as we can tell. So um, he found his vocation as a priest quite young, then became a professor of ancient history and wrote uh, um, actually a beautiful book about Syriac heritage in modern-day Turkey. Then he turned to what would now be called humanitarian relief in the modern-day Lebanon and Syria, was, um, was appointed a bishop and archbishop in Algiers and eventually cardinal. He was one of the sort of visionaries of not only humanitarian relief, but also humanitarian fundraising. So he he had a enormous worldwide network of donors. He took great advantage of, of the new technology of the telegraph and illustrated newspapers. At the end of his life, uh, he became most famous as a really the worldwide leader in the movement against the trans-Saharan slave trade. Now, he he's a very complicated figure who was described as you know being very domineering clearly was an enemy of of Islam as well as an enemy of the of the trans-saharan slave trade so his writings are really complicated to read today but he he had enormous achievements of a rather sort of grandiose sort. He, Interestingly enough, the slavery theme goes right through that generation of the family because, and I found this out since the book was published, his younger brother went to Tahiti, where he was, of all things, a naval veterinarian. And that I knew, that's in the book. But what I didn't know and found just through you know, an, an online almost random search for the family name. When he was there as a 26-year-old naval vet, he became the acting government prosecutor in Tahiti and prosecuted a major case involving the Polynesian slave trade from Peru. There were there, there was some appalling slavers from Peru who sailed to Polynesian islands, kidnapped a lot of islanders, drugged them in many cases, and tried to take them back as slaves in the um, in the Guano Islands of Peru. And this young La Vigerie was there prosecuting the ones that the French were able to capture. So, yeah, this is um, it's a, another intriguing connection and one that I'm following up rather actively at the moment, which is part of what I mean about it being an infinite history. So for my final question, how can histories from below help us view the past in unexpected ways? I think that history from below can make one think about 
individuals in the past as being people like us. On the one hand, history gives you a sense of how profoundly different life was in the past. And on the other hand, it gives one a sense of how they were all people with their own lives, their own information, their own social networks, their own hopes. And to think of other people as being real people makes one understand that um, all human beings are, are worthy of respect. I could say that through micro-histories, you start to think differently about a large question like the French Revolution. For example, uh, I thought much more about the positive economic effects of the, of the French Revolution for families like the Ferrand because of property redistribution amidst all the bad effects. I think it made me think much more about how deeply knowledge about slavery extended into European society. But I think the most important lesson of all is to respect everyone, however different they are and however far away and long ago they may seem. That was Emma Rothschild. Her book, An Infinite History, The Story of a Family in France Over Three Centuries, has been shortlisted for the 2021 Kundal History Prize. It's published by Princeton University Press and is available now. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Tim Harper will be discussing his book, Underground Asia. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.